Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. For the second time you join us in a French tavern and for at least the second time Tim is late. Yes I know. Uh, this time we're on a secret and shadowy mission and I... Oh, nope, here he is. Here he is now. Hello. I was just pissing by the door and I heard a shat. Uh, no, 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 we're not doing that. That's... We've been charged by Marshal Tavanis with the assassination of the Abbot of Amboise. Hey, the missing episodes obsessives, not French Catholic agents and assassins, well, for God's sake. We need to sketch about something. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he perpetrated the Bell of Doom hoax. <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. Right, I'll get him for that. Uh, don't we need code names or something? Yes. Okay. I'll be. Um, I'll be the me beggar. Yeah, missing episodes. Get it? No, that's terrible. Um, no, I'll be the sea devil, and you shall be known as Bondo. The name's Store, Bondo Store. Mm. Yes, well, here's your arquebus, and uh, when the abbot walks through that door there, just take him out. Well, even though he's just come in? Fine, I'll take him back out again. No! I mean kill him with your rifle! Okie dokie, then. Perfectly happy to kill a stranger in cold blood. That's the Tim I know. Look out, here he comes. There he is. Now, Tim. That's not the abbot. That's our special guest. That's him. Bring him to me. But he doesn't sound like the guest. What if he's pretending to be the abbot? Oh, well. Ask questions later. Welcome back to the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast, and it's episode 10. My name's Tim, and Paul is back in the siege show, or hot seat. Hello, Paul. Hello, and this time we're here to talk about the fifth story of season three, the very missing The Massacre brackets of St. Bartholomew's Eve. Uh, close brackets. But first, let's introduce our guest. It's Stephen Schapansky off that Radio Free Scaro. Bonjour as they say here in parts of Canada, <laughs> and indeed in French. Oh, bonjour. Oh, we're not going to carry on with the French. That's enough of that. No, no, that's it. That's all I know. Stephen, how are you? What episode of Radio Free Scarrow are you up to now? Uh, we are up to, at the time of recording, about to do 854 of Radio Free Scarrow. That's not counting the various little uh, mini episodes we've done. So I don't know. It, it, anyway, we're, we're coming up on our 16th anniversary, if that helps. We're, we're coming up to our key to time season um, of, of Radio Free Scarrow in August of, of, of 2022. Wow. Why don't you hate it by now? I don't know. I should <laughs> hate it. I really should. Uh, you know, usually I, I, I used to run a beer league hockey team, and I kind of, that petered out after five or six years, and there are other things that I've sort of like, oh, well, you know what, after five or six years, I'm kind of done with this. And uh, I never get tired of it. It's always exciting. It's, it's, it's nice when Doctor Who is always in the public eye and always has news to talk about and keeps making shows and seems to keep getting bigger and bigger and, and more newsworthy. Uh, despite occasional dips, perhaps in the public eye, but it uh, it seems to be a very exciting time for the show once again. So it's uh, it's nice to be covering it. Oh, were you first out of the blocks with a podcast? 
were you the first or were you one I of the first? We or? were possibly the fourth. Um, I think. I think there was one called the, I think maybe Doctor Who Podshock was first. They stopped a few years ago. I think there was another one called uh the Who Cast, which is not the same as other Who casts that have come along since. <laughs> and there was one that's still going but is not as um frequent that has been going longer than us. I think it's the it's a German Doctor Who podcast, believe it or not. That I think they started about a few months before we did in August uh, 2006. Uh, so I, I think they all all they talk about there is all the audition prints of the Ice Warriors being sent there, but no one <laughs> understands it because they're all speaking in German. Yeah. Wow. Gosh. Well, congratulations on such longevity. Oh, thank you very much. And it still sounds fresh and fun and brilliant, and you're all you're all so fun to listen to. It's uh, remarkable. Uh, we don't aspire to be fun at all, so it's um... <laughs> God, per perhaps like the episode we'll be discussing today. <laughs> well, quite. Tell us about missing episodes because you're in another bit of the world where I I don't have an appreciation of of what being a fan in Canada would have been like in the in the eighties and in the wilderness years. And, and so how did you latch on to the whole missing episodes thing as part of your early fan experience? Hmm. Well, I think it, like everyone, they pro I probably discovered them when uh, they were airing, like all the episodes were airing and all of a sudden, oh, they skipped over this one. I guess they, maybe they just didn't feel like showing it. And then, and then my, my radar tweaked when I saw them skip from the time meddler to the war machines and then the very next day they went to the dominators and i think something's up here <laughs> something <laughs> is up and so i mean this is this is the early 90s when i saw that and i think i i it was a gradual process there was no great aha moment that that led me to think that oh all these episodes are missing and and you know as one got interested in the internet and then in podcasting and then you know knowing people who were involved in in getting them back and restoring them it, it was you know a, a very gradual process you know going to conventions like Gallifrey one in Los Angeles went to my first one in 2009 and once you actually start interacting with fans in person and you know people from like the restoration team like Steve Roberts and, and company um, that's when you sort of like get in on the you know on the good stuff so to speak like I I, I sort of like entered that way and sort of then sort of found the missing episodes forums. So I felt ah. like I went to the, the sources first and then sort of like see what the, uh, the rest of the people are saying. So I, I, I don't find, uh, I'm, I'm prone to rumors, although I think we were always, were sort of bought up in the hype of the Omni rumor back in 2013, uh, mm. and fondly remember those days to this day, uh, some nine years on. Interesting times interesting times i remember you saying at the time actually because we connected didn't we through a, a mutual friend and then didn't realize you know you didn't realize it was me when i asked you to do a podcast or whatever that's true i i remember you back then you were still very fact-based i remember you saying look i'm quite happy to talk about this stuff but i'm only going to talk about facts and i'm not interested in what's on the forums but it still shows the impact and the the depth and reach of those rumors i think that you know, even fact-based people like yourself back in 2013 were seriously contemplating a, a hefty return of episodes. So let's have a chat about the fifth story of 
season three. The the massacre uh, of St. Bartholomew's Eve. And I wonder at this point, because we have been talking a lot and we will be talking further in further episodes about this Wiles and Tosh partnership. I wonder if just from the off, is this the last of their pure vision, I wonder? Is this the last thing conceived and written? Some people might take um, issue with the word pure because they, it's often considered that their pure vision never got to the screen. They, they certainly think that. The, the, the short versions that they, they spent most of the time, they were there rewriting scripts they'd inherited and commissioning their own scripts and then left before any of their own scripts got made. <laughs> um, and I, th- I think there's a lot of truth in that. They, they basically set in course the four-part story edict that uh, went through the entirety of, of, of season three. I almost feel like they sort of invented modern Doctor Who without realizing it because, you know, ten years later that became the norm. At the time, longer, longer stories were, you know, much more common. Um, obviously, because, oh, we'll just make them all four-part stories. We don't have to worry about making new sets every four episodes. Uh, that's up to the Innes Lloyd and Jerry Davis to do that. They also arguably killed off the historical by producing two, which were, <laughs> which were yeah, the, the Myth Makers, the Massacre, a hand in bringing the gunfighters about, which, which did it for the historical. So that's interesting in itself. Mm-hmm. It springs to mind also to discuss it here because it handily captures the idea of mass death. (laughs) (laughs) Just to review quickly season three since Verity Lambert left, Mission to the Unknown was the very last Verity Lambert, wasn't it? But everybody died in that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then we saw the Myth Makers and everybody died in that. And then we see the the Daleks master plan and three companions ish got killed in that. Yes, Dave. Everybody died, Dave. Everybody's dead, Dave. Yes. <laughs> and then we have the massacre in which everybody dies, except the baddies. You could argue. Except the baddies. So in that sense, you could argue that it esca- well, no, I'm not taking any sides in the religious um, d- debate. <laughs> <laughs> that asterisk will be applied throughout my discussion today. But yeah, I mean, you could argue it's the peak of their nihilistic approach to the children's own program yeah. adults adore i wonder whether they got away with it and that's something we can contemplate perhaps as we discuss the massacre and it's something which was touched on on an interview that stephen conducted with james Corey smith which perhaps we'll touch on as well in that there's a, a comforting distance between the events of the past and now by a few hundred years and so people aren't that invested in the death of the french and people aren't invested in the death of brett katarina and sarah because they're far future characters and so on so i wonder whether whether we might talk more about that later on but yes it, to me it's sort of the end of an era because after this we go to the arc which is of a completely different tone. <laughs> Let's talk about the the background behind the massacre, and it's another instance of the complicated writing process. So we've already got lost in the myths of who wrote what in the Daleks' master plan. And I dare say next time on The Celestial Toymaker, we might get lost <laughs> in the many contributors to that. But I'm afraid the massacre is of a similar ilk. Mm-hmm. So if I've got this right, and correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand it, John Lucarotti of the Marco Polo and 
the Aztecs fame had submitted a number of story outlines prior to this point, but they had been rejected. Interestingly, apparently Dennis Spooner had an edict that all historicals had to predate 1600. <laughs> what a weird thing. Is everything too recent? Is that... Uh... Is there, are there people in the viewing audience that would look at the uh, at the English Civil War and think, no, 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 this is a, <laughs> the wounds are too real still? It's a bit late, but is it? It could sort of be seen as a, a sh- shorthand for the modern <laughs> the modern era of history, where people are like us and not medieval grunting, smelly peasants that we can't possibly identify with. Not my views, the views of Dennis Spooner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 1965 Britain. Yeah. So, uh, Lucarotti's suggestions concerning the Indian mutiny uh, was rejected, as it had been rejected for Terry Nation. And interestingly, he was allowed to progress quite far, evidently, with a plot about the Vikings and Eric the Red. And this was uh, enabled by Spooner, who was already writing his own Viking story. And this story development was allowed to run and run. And then when it gets to Donald Tosh being in post, it gets let down. So by this point, John Lucarotti is pretty brassed off because he's worked quite hard on two submissions. He's been, he's been carrot dangled with a Viking idea and it gets dropped. So apparently he gets his agents involved. Donald Wilson at the BBC gets involved and I get the feeling they sort of strong-armed Tosh into allowing him to have a third crack and why not? Because John Lucarotti's stories are brilliant. Mm-hmm. It said elsewhere that he had indeed been, um, you know, informally contracted for three stories. So this is, it may well be that uh, that's why they couldn't uh, just brush him under the carpet. It's a long way between episode uh, his second and his third story. Like two years pass essentially between him, like to have that hanging over. By the way, we've got one more from John Lucarotti. We've got to squeeze in here. And the program has evolved quite a lot, hasn't it? Because he's very much a series one man in the way he approaches these. Mm-hmm. That's no reason for David Whitaker not to reintroduce fluid links and the <laughs> fruit machine in <laughs> season five. No, he had much more indulgent script editors, didn't he, when he made his returns? We have a John Luca Rossi who needs to write a story. Now, here we get into the territory of reliable or unreliable narration of history. And maybe if we've all read different sources, we may all have a slightly different take. But you will remember, if you listen to Toby Haydock talk on our Mythmakers podcast, that he alluded to the idea, well, he didn't allude to the idea, he he just outright stated it, that if somebody was dead (laughs) and Donald Tosh could take credit for something, then Donald Tosh (laughs) may have been inclined to take credit for something. The flip side being that if somebody is dead and had a bad idea, and Don Tosh had a bad <laughs> idea, but the person who would be able to contradict them is dead, he will offload that bad idea onto them. Yeah, the fact that Donald Tosh basically outlived every single person who he worked with in the 1960s uh, leads us to <laughs> basically, if you if you only get your Doctor Who history from uh, DVD documentaries, it seems that Donald <laughs> Tosh is basically responsible for all of it. So with that in mind, and with that pinch of salt at hand, and ready to be taken, Tosh apparently came up with the idea of setting an historical story during the French Wars of Religion. John Lucarotti agreed, 
he went away and wrote it and unfortunately Tosh was not impressed with the historical accuracy and had to go to the British Library and rewrite the thing. John Lucrotti was paid off and Tosh, because by this point he was no longer story editor by the time it went out, is that right? Yes, by episode four, yeah. Got a co-credit on episode four. Now, it's only 20 or 30 years later that Tosh seems to have started telling people that the reason he rejected Lucrotti's scripts was because they were historically inaccurate. So there doesn't appear to be a lot of... Well, okay. There's no evidence, because we don't have Lucrotti's original script. That's something we need to get very clear. But there doesn't seem to be any even second-hand evidence that that was the reason. There could be... There are various other possible reasons which we'll, that he needed to rewrite it, which we'll come on to. Sure. There are various elements which, we, which were dropped into this story, or appeared in this story from the off, and I wonder if we can do some sort of job of trying to assign potentially who did what, or trying to unpick uh, Donald Tosh's potential revisionism. A good tool for using that would be perhaps the target novelisation from 1984? Yep. Early 80s. 86, I think it was. 86, okay. And there are various elements which appear in, in, in different guises or which we have to factor in. So there is a doppelganger idea which is handled, and I haven't read The Massacre in preparation for this, the, the target novel, but there, there is, that is handled differently. So let's tackle that first, Paul, shall we? Or Stephen. Yep. All right. Can I throw in another caveat? I don't want to be a party pooper or a Debbie Downer. But um, in this discussion about a Doctor Who story about a uh, massive uh, religious uh, <laughs> yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. Got to keep it light for as long as we can. Um, yeah, because we don't have Lucrotti's original script, we also don't know. We we do know that he didn't base his novelization on his original script, literally, mm. because he didn't have it. Now we might assume that mm -hmm. he could remember it reasonably well. <laughs> After 20 years, certainly he would have had to reinvent the dialogue, but we might assume that the structure and the plotting would have reverted to what he originally had planned, with maybe a few tweaks. Um, we do know that he did a lot of extra research in the 80s, which might back up Tosh's suggestion that he hadn't done enough <laughs> in the first place. But How do we know he did a lot of extra he research? He says it on page one of the novel. <laughs> it's, wrong. Oh, it's a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> um, no, sorry, not page one. He... Uh, did he say what research he did? In the 80s. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the, the main thing that he appears to have added to the novel, which is not in the original, which would definitely not have been in his original scripts, is extensive use of underground tunnels and caverns under the city of Paris, which he apparently only discovered when he went on a tour there uh, in the 80s. So although that is a major setting in his book, the assumption is that he had just transferred scenes that would have been in above ground in, in the same sort of taverns and, and buildings, houses and whatever, and palaces into the into the, this underground environment just to give it a bit of extra colour. He also saw a woodcut in a museum, which he which he includes in his book, and that he does mention on page one. Do you want me to read it out? Please do, because I've got it here too. The historical events described in The Massacre are factual, as were the 287 kilometres of tunnels and catacombs under Paris, some of which may still be visited. 
The woodcut engraving of the attempt on Dicolini's life, which shows a cowled cleric in a doorway, does exist. The author has seen it. John Lugarotti. It's almost like he's reaching out from, uh, I was going to say, beyond the grave, from through the decades to, uh, <laughs> to put a firm hand around Don Tosh's neck and say, look, you bastard. I did do some research, <laughs> possibly 20 years late, but I did it. Yeah, I like that he, that he mentions 287 kilometers of tunnels and catacombs, none of which are seen on yep. screen. So, you know, or even mentioned, really, it's, it's all happening in the streets, maybe because they didn't... Uh, they thought building tunnels was going to be tough. I don't know. I think it would be quite probably easier, to be honest. Um, so it's intriguing that he that he he got tunnels. So that that almost feels like it was research after the fact for the novelization that maybe he didn't have for the. Um, the My thoughts on this went up and down and in and out all the way through. I was reading uh, at first when I was reading the book, not knowing what that he'd done that research later on. I was thinking, well, this is obviously. <laughs> I was trying to think of reasons why Tosh might have wanted to thought it needed completely rewriting. Um, in about time, they refer to the, uh, the fact the original script was unfilmable without any, without backing this up in any way. So if he put in loads of scenes in tunnels, <laughs> with the characters being pulled along on sleds by Alsatian dogs, yes, that is the sort of thing that a, a canny script editor might want to remove. <laughs> but it seems more likely that he just added those in for extra colour no, once he'd been given um, license by Target to, to basically do what he wanted with the book. We're doing this completely in the reverse order, but basically when they went to him and uh, with the paperwork, which said The Mask of John Lucarotti, he said, oh, well, actually, actually, I'm not sure I wrote all that much of that. And they gave him the script and said, look, it's got your name on it. And he flicked through and went, yeah, no, I didn't write this. This is awful. I'm not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not writing a novel based on this. This was that Tosh fellow. And then they just basically said, well, <laughs> rather than snatching it back out of his hand and saying, we'll give it to Donald Tosh, they just let him do what he wanted with it, which is interesting. So just before Paul, not to drive this all over the show, but just before you tell us about how the book handled the main story differently to the TV version, in certainly in the aspect of how the doppelganger was handled, I recently listened to an interview by an, an author and researcher called James Curry-Smith, who wrote the Black Archive book about the massacre. It appeared on some... Canadian podcast radio free something or other and in that he said something very interesting which made me wonder again as to the veracity of what Tosh has said but also is making me wonder as to the veracity of what Luca Rotti has, has said or alluded to because James Curry Smith has identified bits of history that are in the TV version of the massacre which can only have been found in a turn of the 19th to 20th century French standard history. And he also pointed out that Lucarotti actually lived in Paris in the 1950s or 60s, and therefore suggesting that the history would have been very accurate when it was being written. So there are different ideas here which don't seem to be agreeing, but this is the case with practically every season three conception history it seems where Donald Tosh is involved god bless him so Paul in the tv version not to get too far ahead of ourselves the doppelganger element the doctor in a nutshell the doctor is not the abbot of Amboise no 
and we can talk about how successful that is and its implications mm-hmm. later. But how does the Lucarotti novel handle it? In the Lucarotti novel, the abbot has a larger role than he does on television. The doctor also has a larger role than he was on television. There's um, now again we could come back later to whether or not this is whether or not Lucarotti originally wrote a script with a doctor in full in making a full appearance, Hartnell making a full appearance in four episodes, or whether he took the opportunity with the novel to correct a production, what he would have seen as a production limitation of not having him in. We, we don't know. But anyway, what we do know is that not only are the Doctor and Abbott larger characters, he makes use of the fact that the Doctor has a doppelganger, makes it relevant to the story mm-hmm. in a way that, for all its many qualities, I think it's a rather bizarre flaw at the heart of the um, the TV version, that it's that the Doppelganger story is completely irrelevant. It appears to have been something that Tosh and Lucarotti worked up between them, possibly inspired by Tosh, possibly Tosh saying Hartnell wants more to do, and they worked up between them a way of giving him <clears throat> something more interesting than playing his own robot <laughs> double, or indeed his own evil son. Well, was it, was this the same time when, when Hartnell had sort of come up with that idea that... Uh... He, the doctor's son would, would be an evil version of himself yeah. and he would play both roles. Like. It has been seriously suggested, I think possibly by Jim Smith, that um, that this might have been, although that sounds quite a ludicrous idea, they might have taken it semi-seriously and thought, well, hang on, yeah, okay, we're not doing the evil son of Doctor Who, but let's give him, let's let Hartnell play a villain because, you know, it worked for Troughton. Mm-hmm. It's an idea they keep coming back to. It worked for Tom Baker with a load of spines stuck on his face and so on and so on. It's a way of showing off the versatility of your, of your leading man. But no, um, the oddest thing for me about the TV story is that the story is built on two main planks. It's the story of the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve stroke day, and it's a story about the Doctor having a double. And yet, having committed to being about the Doctor having a double, it then does as little as possible with that. There's a huge gaping hole in those middle episodes where that storyline should be. And in Lucarotti's novel, the opposite is the case. It's pretty much driven by the similarity. In the TV version, there's a, in my opinion, rather contrived falling out between Stephen and his Huguenot friends, Gaston and Nicholas Mousse, uh, when, when he <laughs> bizarrely insists that the evil uh, Catholic abbot they're looking out the window is his friend the Doctor, even when he realises how that must be making him look, and they even more ridiculously, think that despite him having just volunteered the information that this is his friend, decide that he must be admitting to being in the pay of the Abbot of Amboise, which um, I personally think is rather contrived. In the, t- in the book, that's the uh, misunderstandings are dealt with quite quickly. The uh, one big change is that um, initially it's Stephen is left out on his own roaming Paris and it's the Doctor who is hanging around with the Huguenot contingent and although they're in, they recognise him as the Abbot of Amboise and yet very quickly one of their number returns from the palace having just met the Abbot and says well this can't be the Abbot I've just left him so quite quickly possibly you know in, it would be early in the second episode by this point the contrived uh, mistrust is dealt with and then they start thinking about how what we can do with this this doppelganger and they want to use the doctor they want to dress him up in some spare abbot's robe that they have and send him off 
to uh, to do their bidding. Uh. And the Doctor initially refuses because he doesn't get involved in changing history. And he's only persuaded to actually go along with this ruse um, when Stephen is taken prisoner by, uh, by Stephen du uh, Simon Duval's men. And so he goes and he dresses up as the abbot the first time to go to sneak into the palace and get Stephen released. He, I think he does it three times in all. Uh, the second time, I think, is to, oh, this may be in the wrong order. He does it again to get Anne Chapelet released when she's uh, rather in a rather contrived manner got herself locked up with her family. And the third time, um, it's quite a nice touch, actually. He, he admits that it would be uh, rather selfish and hypocritical of him to agree to Gaston's suggestion that he dress up as the abbot only to help his friend Stephen, uh, but not, and not to help the Huguenots. So he agrees to find out what he can about what Duval is, uh, and Tavans are planning. And he, he, makes and he makes several visits to the uh, inner sanctum, getting slightly further in each time until it, it culminates in a scene where he is in the, a large meeting with the king and the queen and all the Huguenot and Catholic leaders, all the main characters in one room, and he's there pretending to be the abbot. Initially, he's just trying to draw out of them what this conspiracy is, who they're trying to murder, and when and where. But he can't resist giving them a bit of a lecture on, um, on his own theological position, which boils down to, <laughs> thou shalt not kill. Um, which is the mm -hmm. first point at which they realise that he can't be a real abbot, of course, because he says something moral and true to the Bible. No, they don't. That's not true. They, um, that's me. That's me editorialising. Anyway, so anyway, he, um, yes, he, he does eventually prize out the information about the the whole sea beggar code name for the Admiral, Admiral de Coligny is not used, but he, but it is still about the the planned assassination of Coligny. He gets that information and takes it back to the Huguenots, which um, means that. One very slight but telling difference is that when the assassination fails initially and Coligny is just wounded rather than killed, it's because the doctor has at the last moment decided to intervene and distract the, sort of move Coligny slightly out of the way of Bondo, the, the assassin. Whereas on te television... He drops a piece of paper, basically. Yeah. When you were reading the, the, the novel, I mean, I read it, but... 30 years ago and <laughs> pretty much all I can remember is that they land on a cabbage patch uh, a, a garbage patch don't they with cabbages on and there's some framing of a Time Lord trial or something isn't there but did you get did you get the feel that you could have watched this as a, a Doctor Who or did you feel that it was too richly rewritten or embroidered or over the top could you could you envisage this happening on the screen i don't want to jump ahead to the end where i'm giving my summing up thoughts on both versions but um i think it's uncontroversial to say that it feel it does feel more like a typical doctor who story and that's uncontroversial because whether you love or loathe the television the massacre is going to be because it's so atypical it is it, it is not the standard it doesn't have the tone or the structure of a standard a children's adventure serial, or a doc, or specifically a Doctor Who serial. The use of the guest characters, the use of the main characters, is different. <laughs> Whereas the book does feel more like a sort of mashup of all the historicals we've had so far. It doesn't particularly feel like Marco Polo or or the Aztecs. It's a lot more playful. There's a lot more comedy in it. When I went into the book, I was on a bit of a down with the TV version. I was on a downer because I thought it was its main flaw was not being Doctor Who enough, and I thought the book was going to address those faults and be much more my cup of tea. 
But as it went on, it does start to ramble a bit. And the tone, the fact that it keeps up a fairly light tone right up until the end doesn't work in the way that it does in, a, in say, a Donald Cotton story in, in The Mythmakers, where that's, you know that's deliberate and part of its genius. Here, it just feels like a sign that Lucarotti didn't really want to be writing the story that Tosh wanted him to write. I think Tosh uh, wanted something very astounding. dark. When Tosh tries on record as saying that he thought Lucarotti completely missed the point of the story, i.e. missed the point of the pitch that Tosh had given him. Now, whether that was something technical or whether it was just the feel of it, it could be, it could be either or both. How jolly interesting. Thank you so much for, for reading that in preparation for this, Paul. I think that's <laughs> it's really important in trying to unpick who did what in this journey. Tosh leaves soon, so we won't have to do this <laughs> <laughs> so often. But wait until you get to the celestial timing. That'll be just as much research all over again. But please, wait, wait, let's have a nice simple one. Let's have an in Stuart Black. He just he just wrote what he wrote and then moved on, didn't he? And we can do the same. <laughs> Now, season three is also incredibly complex in another regard, and because there is a very slender production file, because, as we know, John Wiles wasn't a fan of keeping things, trying to quite unpick who intended companions were to be throughout season three is also quite difficult. So I don't want to relabor the point of what's gone on, but let's just quickly summarise. Maureen O'Brien gets the Guna during the Mythmakers. She is a replacement character is conceived, named, and then drops before the cast actress has spoken a line of dialogue in front of a camera. Appears for five episodes, four and a half episodes, but they decide they don't think having a an historical companion of such vintage is a good idea. We then get through temporary replacement Sarah and Brett in uh, brackets and they conceive that Anne Chaplet who appears in the massacre would be a good idea for a future companion. Now I don't know if, if whether the listeners or indeed indeed my esteemed colleagues here are aware that Donald Cotton's original notes have been uncovered for uh, the Mythmakers and the Gunfighters and is named as the companion in the Gunfighters. I find it curious because uh, you shared with me the, um, the the camera scripts from these four episodes, and I watched the episodes along with wow. them, uh, which is very handy. But there's, you know, it's it's uh, Dodo throughout, but there is one stage direction where uh, after Dodo enters the TARDIS, and Stephen came back in and says, phew, that was close, and Doctor says, uh, well, what made you change your mind, my boy? And in brackets, the stage direction, Stephen focuses on Anne for the first time. And then he says, how did you get in here when she addresses? So I'm wondering if that was, they, they, they quickly changed all the references to Dodo, I mean, to from Anne to Dodo, but missed that one. So perhaps Anne was still did in she there. say uh, in response, uh, oh, on my feet, Master Steve. Yeah, yeah, she did say did. on my feet. She'd actually <laughs> say that, yeah. In whatever accent she was doing that week, yeah. Uh, Mama said, uh, Anne would have been Mama Settish, wouldn't she? And then they thought that sounds suitably northern. <laughs> For all the incompetence of these rewrites and in ill-conceived ideas and 
quick firings. It does make a fascinating trail of breadcrumbs, doesn't it, to pour over decades later. The story goes that John Wiles says, hang on a minute, haven't we just done this with Katerina? And so as soon as he said that, they all thought, oh, yeah. And they dropped the idea of this <laughs> historical companion, um, which was never to be revisited again, apart from, what, 18 months later. Yeah, so they, <laughs> they come up with the <laughs> contrived notion of replacing Anne Chaplet with Dodo Chaplet, and the contemporary hip Lancashire companion is, you know rubber stamped and stuck with for all of half an episode i have noticed while i've been reading about this is it a problem that dodo's surname is chaplet and Anne's surname is chaplet can they possibly be related i don't think it's a problem i, I remember thinking oh well how can it, it it speaks to 300 years of the patriarchy really in saying that oh well how can how can <laughs> a woman possibly have the same last name as a woman from 300 years ago when she would have obviously taken uh, the husband's name and all the marriages, assuming that there would be marriages, of course, over the next 300 years as well. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's not, uh, you know, perhaps uh, Dodo's parents or perhaps someone uh, further along the line who says, you know what? No, I'm not going to take the name. I'm going to revert to my original name, which is Chaplet, and uh, and go on from there. It's, it's fairly easy. You know, my wife does not uh, take my last name. There are many, many other cases of that same instance happening. So, yeah, 100%. Thinking back right. to the mores of 400 years ago, though, possibly the most likely explanation is that by the time... Anne Chaplet, or one of her descendants, arrives in England. Uh, she is mm -hmm. a, uh, a single mother. Thus, her prog progeny would take. I, I, I have one other theory as well, which I, I actually, uh, I think I put it to Peter Purvis on stage in a convention interview once, and he called it. Uh, I nonsense. hope you're going to say what I think you're going to say. Well, it was that uh, in between episodes two and three of this, uh, Anne and Stephen stay the night in Preslin's shop and you, you notice there's there's some affection between the two in the in, in episodes three and four uh, and I intimated that perhaps Stephen and Anne uh, had sex and then later on Anne would give birth and eventually Dodo essentially is Stephen's great 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 granddaughter which is why he has such a paternal protective nature to her in uh, in their few episodes together because because uh, he's he's actually related, and that uh, that paternal instinct is coming on, and uh, I, I said that potentially as a joke, but also as a you know, to test the waters with Mr. Purvis, and uh, he did not he did not take the bait. He must have been very tall, because <laughs> I'm sure he'd, in general he must would love the idea that um, that Stephen Taylor was as big a shagger as he was, right? <laughs> oh dear. No, I had come across that theory, and I had it in the back of my mind when I was reading the novel. And I know if you squint, you can always believe that John Lucarotti, possibly with twenty years hindsight, is is not. Now, I don't think I'm reading too much into it. He does talk about the close relationship between them, and when they cuddle up on those those cold Parisian nights, there is something going on. And yet, at the same time, in the same breath, he makes a point of her saying that she's fifteen. So I don't know. Um, Please, if anybody out there has, has thought about this more deeply than I have, I'm, I'm a bit conflicted on whether Lucarotti is hinting at what Stephen and I both believe to be the case. <laughs> <laughs> okay, continuing on behind the scenes, is this the first female director? It is, because, uh, what, Julia Smith follows along for The Smugglers, I think, at the end of this production block? Hmm. Yeah. No, Paddy Russell... 
In terms of this being very missing, I'm wondering what it might look like. Paddy Russell is of excellent directing stock, as it were. She was Rudolph Cartier's right-hand man, as it were, right-hand woman. Mm-hmm. And they they had they're famous. They were famous for having their ding dongs on the sets of uh, uh, of Quatermass and so on and so forth. So that's where she learnt her art or had her art polished. Mm-hmm. And what what other Doctor Who's did she do? She did. Uh, she eventually came back to do um, Pyramids of Mars, and of course did uh, the oh. dinosaurs and Horror of Fang Rock. Ooh. I mean, from what I gather, she was a very strong personality. Perhaps that's what you have to do to become the first woman director in Doctor Who. I'm trying to remember if this is an interview that I've heard or an interview I've done. Again, a different one, perhaps, with Peter Purvis. Because I remember saying, how did uh, Hartnell get on? And I seem to recall that Purvis was saying that because she was a strong-willed woman, Hartnell sort of respected that. And therefore, it's kind of like, you know, knew his place and and didn't get into any in, in, in any rouse or anything like that which is interesting because I'd, lo- I'd you know this is around the same time where he mysteriously disappears from um from episodes 11 and 12 of Dalek's master plan he's on vacation for episode 2 of the massacre he's barely in episode 3 in his other role and he swoops in at the very end in episode 4 and and you know I, that's what I'm always curious about about this time in the show's history was he he's obviously not getting along with john wiles but i i don't get that impression that he was not getting along well with uh, with patty russell so i i don't know if things were being altered to account for his absence or perhaps things were being altered to account for a potential absence and that's sort of you know taking taking the reins away from him in his own show i don't know which is which hard to know isn't mm. it because i think i think it's it's true and fair to say that we can assume that the second episode, episode two, was a pre-planned leave because they they know they had to they knew they had to pre-film his appearance in episode two with a brief glimpse mm-hmm. that Stephen has of him from the window. But then, yeah, <laughs> as with the rest of this year, this era, well, they sort of take advantage of the notion that they've already had to work him out to hardly have him in episode three at all as well. Strange thing that's going on with uh, William Hartnell in this era because when he does appear we'll get to performances and characterization and the rest shortly i i think he's really good in this mm-hmm. apart from one line as the abbot at the start where he seems to forget how to think speak act uh, and all the rest of it i think he's really rather good so is he trying to prove a point when he's back and is he on form and of course he carries off the they call it the soliloquy don't they in, in episode four pretty well Although there's a, there's a tale about that, which we can tell later. Ooh. So, yeah, interesting. Very interesting. But, yeah, M- Paddy Russell gives a, a, a comforting feel to me. It's going to look good, isn't it? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, a well-put-together piece of television. Yeah, I, th- I think the you know some of the, the arguing seems Gaston's a bit of a hothead. And uh, I, I always... One thing I, I like about multicam drama that you don't, you don't seem to get with single camera because it's all edited together as opposed to a natural performance occurring before your eyes is that people talk over each other. You know, that happens, especially during an argument. And there's a lot of, when you're reading along with the script, especially you can tell which lines are supposed to be being said, but they're sort of like saying it over top of each other because they're interrupting each other as one would do in a, 
you know, in an argument sort of situation. And I feel like that, that part of the directing also comes down, you know, to give it that little bit of intensity. They're not waiting for a line to finish. They are stepping over each other to get their own lines in as, as people in such a situation would do. I think that's down to some good direction as well. I don't have much more to say about the the production side of things, other than to how can how can we we've seen none of it. Other than give, to give a note to the music, because I really enjoyed it and noticed it this time round, and have sought out the original stock music. But to put sort of <laughs> menacing, prowling jazz in there, it's very French, uh, is uh, is a masterstroke, and I love it. Just drums, just bass and cymbals. Yeah, an electric bass too. That's the interesting yeah. thing about it. Like it's not even supposedly period piece, and it's almost exclusively all the music is over the film sequences. Get the impression that a lot of them are probably filmed as mute, essentially with no sound. There's not a lot of dialogue apart from when Stephen and and uh, Anne have their discussion on film. They have that luxury, but it, it's the lack of music, even be, you know, as transitions between scenes in the studio. Mm is somewhat surprising it's you know it's it's a very sparse sounding episode yeah it is which lends to the atmosphere and also saves them money but it also makes the music that they do choose when that comes in all the more noticeable as well but i think it's so well done and who cares that it's not of the period it's a trick mm -hmm. it's a trick to create atmosphere you know if you watch the sting the music in that fits the piece it's not contemporaneous with the drama you know, Scott Joplin's Entertainer is is 20 years prior, but it works. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the music this time. Let's talk about the history covered here, because it probably an unusual subject. Paul, did you do did this I, in school? Did I? Uh, no, uh, no, of course I didn't. I mean, you ask me that every time. And of course, we, we've dealt with some much, much more acclaimed episodes of history in previous stories, none of which I covered at school, so it's not <laughs> we're not going to have done this, no. And and Stephen, you're you you reside in a country where there is a a particularly heavy French presence, pride, history. <laughs> did you cover? Did you fear? do the French wars of <laughs> fear? <laughs> <laughs> did you cover the French? Was it French wars of religion on the general syllabus when you were? You know, ten years ago when you were at school. <laughs> no, I can, I can. Uh, we never learned about the French Revolution. I don't think we certainly did, didn't learn about this. Uh, it tells you my 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 grades probably in uh, in, in uh, high school to to, <laughs> to know that I don't know. I don't know what uh, we would have uh, covered back in high school. But I know that French uh, or American history, for that matter, it was a lot of Canadian history, and it probably it's probably yeah. some World War Two, and I think Rome was in there somewhere too. But no. No, uh, the French Wars of Religion never really covered in Canadian high school in the 1990s. I, I did a thorough poll of, of people who went to school in them days, i.e. my parents, and they they didn't cover it. And I, in the time-honored tradition, I, I, I did a, a, a Twitter poll and asked, did you cover this at school? And normally we get a mostly no, but, you know, like a 70-30 a split perhaps. 92% of people said they hadn't touched it in their education hmm. which makes it a rather unusual subject to go for it makes it also remarkable that both john lucarotti and donald tosh <laughs> had a passion for this subject in my view just so happened that you know lucarotti who had lived in france in paris uh, for a decade in the 50s and uh, we can demonstrably prove that he he 
studied the classic French histories of these in French, wrote about the massacre, and also Donald Tosh had a passion for it. But it is an odd subject to choose, isn't it? It is. Uh, were they the only two that had a, a passion for it? <laughs> I suspect only one. <laughs> Judging by the viewing <laughs> figures uh, over the course of the four episodes, probably. So, such yeah. a shame. They fell out so completely over it. But then, you know, maybe they were too passionate. They Perhaps they both had so, such conflicting takes on it. It's just it's such a it's such a reach to niche history, niche and dark history. I I think it feels different to them trying to do the myth makers and turn it into a a sort of high minded comedy. This feels like a, an objection to that, doesn't it? And we just we're just going to go niche and we're going to go dark and we're going to do another massacre. Maybe the 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 direction to let's cover this sort of story, you know, this sort of a historical story led Donald Tosh down, okay, well, now we want to go darker and, like, cover religious wars. Let's find some religious wars, possibly, that we could do in a, uh, you know, for four weeks in Riverside Studios. And maybe that's why I lent it. There are no great uh, action pieces on the plains. There's no great uh, uh, Trojan horses or anything like that. It's, it, it's, yeah. it's essentially dialogue scenes uh and all the actual massacring is played out with uh uh film shots of woodcuts essentially um from 16th <laughs> yeah. century france to go back to your interview with uh james curry smith he made the point that doctor who doesn't do genocide it's not built for doing genocide you wouldn't have doctor who and the holocaust it just nope. it just isn't built to handle it it's not the sort of thing it, it, it does or should be doing but because we have that cushion of 400 years between that and now and maybe because it's it's johnny foreigners and not you know <laughs> the british right maybe it does get away with it i don't know but it is a it's a very strange subject to tackle you would think that they would do it like as an allegory kind of thing you know on a, a set on a yeah. fictitious space planet in the future they would do some sort of uh you know genocide there and have it so you know yeah. read between the lines we're actually talking about this to actually go back into history to find an actual religious genocide before so. we move, move on from the idea of history my my problem with the story which is not so much about what it is but about whether it was right you know right to do it at all and i don't mean right ethically the 400 year gap uh, gives us a cushion which means we can that it's not considered tasteless to tackle this story in Doctor Who, but just because it's not, people aren't going to be you know, writing to their MP to complain about it doesn't mean that it works dramatically in, in the Doctor Who shape. And this is the, the Doctor can't change anything. I mean, he, he can't save one life, let alone 10,000 here, because of the formula the, the programme has established before, with this non-explained divide between the past being sacrosanct and that's our past, not the Doctor's past, and our future, not the Doctor's future, being a free-for-all. So if we did this as an allegory, Star Trek style, this exactly the same story between you know, uh, two races on a, on a distant planet, the Doctor would be... It would go off in a completely different direction because the Doctor would stop the massacre because he's the hero mm. and that's what he does. So, the point being, they've led themselves up a blind alley here, possibly accidentally or possibly deliberately, Either they've chosen this and then Tosh has chosen this and then realised that you can't tell a Doctor Who story here or he's deliberately trying to push the formula. Now, 
we see it, we see them pushing the boundaries in many of their other stories, not all of them, but in enough to make me think that it is deliberate. Just to interject there for one second, if they'd have stuck with the original companion idea, then the point about not changing history wouldn't have been so laboured. Because you worded it very well, they can't say one life, let alone 10,000. Hmm. So in the original yep. version, who knows quite what shape that took, but Anne would have been on board the TARDIS and they just would have escaped the massacre. It wouldn't have been a question of preventing the massacre. It would have been escaping. It would have been the doctor going, what day is yes. this? What year is this? Yep. Oh, sugar, let's go. So in conception, it would have had a different, a different outcome, a different leaning. What you're that. describing, what, what you're describing is, um, is what an early, an early um, Hartnell would have been like, not even necessarily just the historical ones, whether it be Marco Polo or, or the Daleks, they want to get away. Yeah. Or um, the Aztecs, yeah. yeah. And yeah, that would have worked here, which is odd that even in the book, with its, which is vastly different to the TV version in the details, but even fun, fundamentally, <laughs> you'd think that that would be intrinsic to John Lucarotti's understanding of, doc, of what Doctor Who is, and yet it completely isn't, because in the book, the Doctor knows where they are, what the date is, right from the beginning. I didn't mention that earlier. So that completely flips the TV version on its head, where in the TV, as soon as the Doctor finds out where they are, which is in episode four, they're off. Um, it does make him seem rather reckless and callous in the book, if you think about it, that they arrive four days before the massacre, and he thinks, and what he's basically saying is, well, you know, four days to amuse myself. <laughs> as long as I don't stay any longer than that, it's fine. I'll just go off and nap. I'll go off and natter to some apothecaries, and then, you know, then I'll, then I'll leave them to die. I can enjoy the first three days of this uh, transatlantic uh, <laughs> trip on the Titanic before I pop off on April 12th, the afternoon, maybe. Exactly. Well, maybe that's what the Ninth Doctor did. Um, so again, if, if that was what Tosh wanted, a story about the futility of um, trying to stand up against the, the crushing inevitability of the huge hand of history, <laughs> and Luke probably thought, no, nah, no, this Doctor is just a bit of fun. I want to show off my research. Um, have a few sword fights. But yeah, why? Why You could have done all that and still had the structure of the Doctor wanting to get away rather than wanting to be there. And um, it's, uh, he seems to have confused himself by, by having the Doctor knowing where they are from the beginning. It doesn't really affect anything because the Doctor's desire not to get involved, not to help the Huguenots by dressing up as the Abbot, is not because he knows there's going to be a massacre. It's just his general aversion to dickering around in, in history. Mm. A apart from when it comes to Charles Preslin, of course, who he goes <laughs> who he goes and says, well, there's a German guy who'll be able to see your you know, microscopic creatures, so hook up with him. And, you know, we landed on the moon in 1842 after that. Happened, I assume whoever it? wrote the final version, the Fires of Pompeii, which is probably Russell, would know his massacre, because this, that's basically the same mm -hmm. story, isn't it? Can we save one person? If you save the town, you've changed history. And it's not till for another 50 years or what have you, not quite 50, that Doctor Who even attempts to explain away this business of what you can and can't change by coming up with the fixed points in time. I've rabbited on about this on a different podcast, but um, I do think that's one of the most important things for me <laughs> that anyone's ever contributed to the, the Doctor Who um, mythos of science fiction. 
because the, these fixed points in time and as nebulous as the idea is can be in history in a, in our history or in our future because the, there's one in the waters of mars isn't there mm. so now you can you can hand wave away any given moment the doctor can say well yeah i could change this or i can't change that because it is or it isn't a fixed point in history the point i was going to make is yes be bold create a, a dark moody oppressive drama about religious intolerance and feed it to the children that's a good way of trying to stretch the boundaries of doctor who but you are going to come up against this you're going to finally be forced to confront the question of whether the doctor can change things or not and it's a bit more serious than just can we invent the wheel or whatever for the aztecs Uh, it it can't be an accident that they've picked a point where the doctor is condemning ten thousand people to death by inaction you know even in the doctor's long monologue they give him five minutes to chew over this point and it still doesn't really come up with an answer because there isn't one they don't have one so they just flim flam he didn't understand none of them did they couldn't understand (laughs) says the doctor because he's not speaking to anybody he doesn't bother actually (laughs) no no he doesn't have to explain it to anyone when he's just talking to himself but he knows we're there he knows we're there the feast of Stephen established that he knows we're watching him so he could have at least (laughs) got into a bit more detail for our benefit it's interesting, though, because, you know, just previously, I mean, taking someone out of history uh, is changing the past just as much as leaving someone in history. Vicky stays behind uh, in, in into mythology, essentially, like just a few stories prior to that. So, you know. Sure. And there's a, a new handmaiden needed, isn't there, for uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> to sweep up the remains of Troy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything else to say about tone that you want to get in, Paul? Or Stephen, I I I I mean I'm fascinated by the the whole tone of the Wiles Tosh era. It is unrelentingly dark. Um, after a twelve week Dalek massacre, we're subjected to a four week French massacre. It's I don't think you would make the stories that they made here today. I don't I think people would probably look at that in Russell T Davies uh new writers room and go, "Ooh, maybe maybe we should lighten it up a little bit. Maybe we shouldn't have uh, a giant massacre happening in, you know, tea time Doctor Who for kids." Uh I I can't imagine what kids thought of this. I know the viewing figures went down from what 8 in episode 1 to 5.9 by episode 4 and I'm not sure they ever really properly recovered again until the end of the Hartnell era. Um that might have this this story might have chased people off. Might have chased kids off who were just in there for happy go lucky uh science fiction entertainment, but I I appreciate the tone because if you can't have the lighter moments uh in in the years to come in this in Doctor Who without sometimes saying what if we just go dark and adult and try to appeal to the adults sitting in the room who are watching with their kids as well and try to lure them in in some ways they immediately overcompensate for the tone that they've achieved over the previous 16 weeks or whatever it is because dodo is so incredibly play school at times Mm. in her approach i saw a clip on twitter the other day of her berating one of the monoids I can't remember the, the exact dialogue, but he says, oh, the humans will make it here quicker than they expect, or whatever the line is. And she tells off the monoid in such a play school manner and says, are you up to something really? And he goes, uh, She's no. a bit Maggie Henderson <laughs> from Bod, isn't she? No, that's that's not Snap. No, that's not Snap. Yeah. 
it, it's such an overcompensation, but it's still by the same hand. The Dodo character was still conceived by the Tosh Wiles partnership. The arc was still conceived by John Wiles. It's so one way or the I've other. I've read too many series. reference books recently, so I can't remember who said this, but it was either, I think it might have been either Toby or Rob in Running Down Corridors, but somebody suggested that those last five minutes of Dodo at the end of the massacre are such a, a pathetic descent from the sublime to the ridiculous. That it's almost like Tosh is saying, I've achieved what I want to do with Doctor Who. I cannot go any, I cannot, and I'm off now. I'm out the door. So here's five minutes of your stupid childish adventure series. You have it back again. Setting the tone for what he knew it would inevitably return to once he was gone. I don't know if a professional writer would do that, but it's a... Uh... I, well, I meant because, you know, I, I was holding my tongue when, when Paul was talking about the... Um how the doppelgator bit was, was in the novelization because I wanted to hear what happened in the novelization and how you think that it's not relevant. I actually find it it's very relevant in this story. I didn't realize it until watching it again today in preparation for this. But you're right. The, the, the thing is, is, oh, if there's a character who looks like the main character, obviously they're going to work that in, a la uh, Enemy of the World, um, you know, Android Invasion, etc. Androids of Tara. Um but the only person, the only people who knows that the Abbot and Bamboise and uh, the Doctor look the same are Stephen and perhaps more crucially, the viewer. So the viewer's expectation is that, ah, it's going to be the Doctor, obviously, you know, because Stephen sees him in the street. Oh, there he is, because he disappears. The Doctor disappears for the last half of episode one, isn't seen again until episode two. Uh, and at that crucial moment, you know, I can understand why Stephen is so, wait a second. That's the doctor. His first instinct is that's the doctor, not oh, that's the abbot of Amboise and he looks like the doctor. That's the doctor. He probably knows he's got a plan cooked up, so it's got to be him. That's why he's in disguise as this person that apparently, and that actually sets everything off. Instantly, they distrust Stephen because of that. And then he goes to see him, and even then he sort of thinks that maybe he's doing a bit. And then once Stephen gets um, let out, uh, and then everything else is like, oh, the, you know, the sea beggar lives, the assassination attempt failed. And there's a crucial line where Tavana says, uh, it is strange, Father Abbott, that since you, uh, since you came, everything which was so carefully planned has gone wrong. And that plants the seed that this got to be the doctor. This has to be him and he's behind something. But we're not let in on the planning. That's what makes it so mysterious. What's he planning since we don't see the machinations that are going? And so when, he, when he's dead at the end of episode three, it's a shock because you're thinking, well, wait a second. We thought that was the doctor. Maybe he is actually dead. And so by not playing into the doppelganger aspect for the purposes of the plot and just for, from what Stephen knows and what the viewer knows, that's what kind of raises the, the drama and the question. So I, I actually find it, you know, maybe it was production limitation that made them do it this way. They couldn't have Hartnell as both characters in the same episode because of uh, costume changes and recording breaks. But I think because of that, it actually, it actually works quite well. I am in agreement. I had that moment of realisation when I was listening. Even in episode three, even when Tavan orders the execution of the abbot, and I don't know exactly what the camera script says, but you can imagine swords drawn and them closing in on William Hartnell, and they cut away. Even at that point, the audience is going, how on earth did he get away from that situation? It all falls down, of course, when <laughs> the abbot is killed. But 
for a good two episodes. I think that sustained very well when I when I watched it. I'm in agreement with yourself. Let's run through the characters then, or the performances, uh, quickly and see what we have to say about that. So we talked a, a bit about the Doctor. Well, we haven't talked so much about the performance of William Hartnell as the Abbot. Uh, I don't think he's particularly good as the Abbot. I know there's, I know there's that first one line at the end of part one, which is, oddly enough, is he on film at that point? No, he wouldn't be, would he? It reminded me that I've also recently watched The Celestial Toymaker, where one of the lines he gives in there... Uh, when he's invisible, which would have been recorded not just on film, but probably possibly just the audio out of complete out of context. And there is no modulation in his voice at all. He clearly, without knowing the context of this line that they've just put on a bit of paper in front of him, he doesn't even try to give it any feeling. And um, and even though this is completely in context, I got the same from his first. What what is the line? Have you got, who's got the script? He just says it in a very peculiar sing-song voice. That's him. Bring him to me. That sort of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he sounds like Monoptera in a way. It's weird. He's rubbish. I, what the hell was that? And he doesn't. He's not much better in episode three. Sorry. Well, I, I'm what I like. You know, is I wonder how William Hartnell's playing this. Is he playing it as I'm the Abbot. I'm someone completely different, but I'm not a very good actor to uh, to to make it that different. Or is he <laughs> because the viewer is the only one who knows that. You know the different that they look the same. Is he playing it? I can't go too far from the doc. His characterization of the doc. I'm thinking that must be the only explanation because, of course, yeah, of course he could have done it completely differently. Yeah, he's partly doing it as in this is plausible. This is the doctor putting on this Abbott voice, and also he's doing Doctor Who acting. He's not trying to do legitimate theatre acting. <laughs> <laughs> if Tosh or whoever gave him the script and said. Bill, you've been saying you wanted to show that you're, you know, you can act, that you, that all these fluffs <laughs> are not, um, you're, you know, you're more than just a mountain goat. This is your chance, uh, and he hasn't taken it, he hasn't grabbed it with both hands and done something completely extraordinary. His performance was interfered with by either Tosh or. Paddy Russell. I'm sorry, I can't remember who, but it is noted somewhere where they they had to adjust his performance, presumably in rehearsal, to move it further away from being the Doctor, which probably accounts for that very strange but beautifully reenacted sing-song performance that Stephen just <laughs> delivered for us. Yeah, I gather she would say you're standing with Doctor there, Bill, and he would uh, feel chastened and, and listen to her because she was Paddy Russell. I may say this next time, but he goes a bit Scottish as well at times. It's very strange. Uh, not that being Scottish is in, inherently strange, but it's strange that it's a, an acting choice. But I agree, he's at best, <laughs> success is at best mixed as the abbot. But I think he's, he, he nails it as the doctor when he's there. I think it's as good a performance as you'll hear from him. He revels in the historicals, doesn't he, Hartnell? He's very confident. There's no confidence when he's in the um, in the sci-fi stories. He's finding his way around the dialogue. He never quite knows how to pitch it. But I I think he's good for the you know for the thirty forty minutes we get of him as a doctor. I like the scene where he's where he's sort of trying to convince Preslin, you know, to to reveal himself that he's in safe company. 
you know, it, it's a nice little, he's winning him over, but ever so gradually just by saying, you know, yeah. if it was done in the modern series, it'd be Jody Whitaker's doctor, but say, oh, Charles President, you're brilliant. And then proceed to read off the <laughs> Wikipedia page for him. Uh, but he sort of like gradually brings it into conversation that he knows his work. Uh, that you're you're safe to reveal yourself to me now, and I'll get you to yeah. to a safe place. And he he does that long speech very well at the end, despite it being typical, slightly nonsensical, 1960s Doctor Who philosophy in there. There is there is uh, a perhaps mm -hmm. apocryphal tale. I'm not sure of. Uh, he wasn't confident about having such a long speech. But they buttered him up in the rehearsals, didn't they? Oh, bravo! Can I just say what a marvelous performance that was? And so he absolutely nailed it on camera. Was it really interesting? Wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. Is again, it... again, Tosh takes credit for that, I think. But I'm not implying that it's not that, true. Well, that's just, it, it, that's just. Yeah, a it it feels like uh, either it was, uh, you know, inspired by a scene from an adventure in space and time, where Sidney Newman and Verity Lambert do the same for him early on, or perhaps that scene in Adventure in Space and Time being written by Mark Gay. This was probably inspired by an actual uh, off-screen anecdote. Um, you know, yeah, one sure. and the same perhaps at this point. Peter Perth's his favorite story? Understandably, he carries it. Um, you know, uh, credit to him. Credit to him. It's a, it's a shame in a way that uh, he took home that Trilogic game prop <laughs> at the end of his time in Doctor Who, and it didn't work for eighteen yeah. months afterwards. Because I think that uh, I think we were robbed of his of his acting talent, and instead got his presenting talent uh, instead. I thought he was quite good in this. Yes, I always say the same thing. He's very game. He's very capable. I'm beginning to find his emphaticness a little bit stale if that's the right word. He he mm -hmm. always delivers extremely emphatically, right. doesn't he? Shouts quite, not shouts, but speaks with great volume quite a lot. Um, and I think that's my problem as a reviewer who's listening to lots of these things one after the other. But yeah, no, he carries it. Uh, I, I I don't have anything other anything else to say other than my, my impression, and it may not be true, but my impression was that he was slightly less shouty and unnecessarily mm. angry here than normal. Maybe it's just, I'm sure he does do some of that, but there's mm. quite a few quiet moments where he's forced to be quiet because of the, yeah. the situations uh, that he's in. So, um, yeah, I just, coming up from the other angle, I agree that it's one of his best. Sure. Um, I don't wish to labour the point about Dodo, but this is the companion section. She's extremely northern. And it, and and it that changes. Is <laughs> that, that is contrasted very shortly, very soon. I, 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 we've talked about Dodo. I, I don't think there's anything else we can wring from this five-minute appearance. At the Why end did fans, for so many years, talk about her Cockney accent? Um, <laughs> I thought I was going to make an original observation here, but Toby says the same in Running Through Corridors. As a... Well... Well, what is she on yeah, film really? in, in the arc? And when did they shoot that? Because did they sh I, shoot that probably close to when they shot her? Oh, the accent does fade away, but it's never Cockney. It starts off as, where do you think it is, Tim? Can you locate it precisely? No, it's Lancashire. It's broad Lancashire. Lancashire. Watch it, hey. this, you know, Manchester. I, I will tell you, well, well, without knowing the source, I will tell you where the source probably came from, and that is America, uh, where British accents fall into two uh, categories. <laughs> You're either posh 
David Tennant, uh, every yeah. other doctor, or Cockney Christopher Eccleston, <laughs> who was called, I, I, as I recall, Christ, uh, Christopher Eccleston was probably was Cockney Doctor because I yeah. think what? I think American people probably just sort of took Cockney as shorthand as basically, you know, <laughs> what, lower what, class, yeah, that sort as, of thing. As epitomized yeah. in Frasier, which I would have thought was is in the modern era, and I thought people would have known there, but the North, the Mancunian Daphne, her all her other. Yep. Her brother is played by an American actor. Is Cockney, isn't he? Um, yes, and he is. I think pretty much every other one of her <laughs> relatives. Oh no, hang on. No, her mum. Her mum is. Um, somebody help me out. Her from that was the week. That was the week that was. Anyway, the the point. Yeah. Oh. It doesn't really matter about the. Every time they cast a British actor to be one of her relatives, they would play it Mancunian. But if they cast an American to be cheap. <laughs> they're playing yep. Cockney and I, th I think you're absolutely <laughs> right there mate that's a very interesting idea my theory was going to be that it was this this came about based on a folk memory of the episodes before the audio was in circulation I can't really see how I mean, uh, e even the early audios as crackly and hissy as they were any British listener would know that that wasn't Cockney I don't know yeah my memory of, uh, thankfully I say thankfully I'm not prejudice against the arc at all but we don't have to review the arc so i won't be watching it very soon but my memory is that the pre-film sections on the arc are her with a northern accent and when she's in by the time they get to the studio she's been the the bbc have heard a, a non-bbc rp accent and have vomited everywhere and said <laughs> we can't possibly have a regional accent on yeah. the bbc so she's then filming uh sorry she's then taping with a bbc rp style more neutral accent and because the film inserts are inserts it alternates on and I off. I think ironically they could have got away with certain types of regional accents and if they'd gone for a rural accent which Anne Chaplet has I think nobody would have objected it. I, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on what yeah. the difference would have been considered to be but um, rural just makes you sound like a, a, a benign simpleton whereas northern was a bit dangerous wasn't it? Yeah, even in, in that era. <laughs> that was not something you wanted pe the kids down south to be emulating. Renowned TV researcher David Brunt recently shared on Twitter a letter into one of the papers. And it is somebody complaining about the presence of northern accents on a, uh, perhaps Z cars. Uh, haven't we been subjected to enough of these damned regional accents? <laughs> And this got published. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's the sort of um, atmosphere that there was at the time. Would Anne have made a successful companion? Um, oh, God. If you mean to, in the writing, in terms of having to explain everything to her, blah, 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 um, you can get away with it, and you get away with it the way they did with Jamie, which is to use a combination of humour and ignoring it. So you you, yeah. you start off with him occasionally saying, "Oh, doctor, what's one of they, them things?" And then you and everyone has a laugh, and then you, as soon as you can, you you imply that he's a very quick learner, and you just move on. Now, of course, Tosh and Wise, being very serious dramaticians, would not have considered uh, using so base a device. And in terms of the performance, she's um, it's quite natural, and maybe maybe she wouldn't have had the uh, spark that they saw in Fraser Hines you know to to make it worth that gamble mm. I don't know 
I'd like to see it though. Well, it's it's not like Dodo um, reacts any like she doesn't <laughs> actually. Oh, so you're not a policeman then? Is her first reaction to stepping inside a box that's bigger on the inside than it is on exactly. the outside? Exactly. She makes no reference to the fact that she's in this vast cave, right? Having gone into a small wooden box, it's quite refreshing, really, not to be confronted with that. But yeah, <laughs> so per- perhaps inquisitiveness uh, is carries down to the generations. Maybe, maybe uh, Anne would have just sort of go, "Oh, it's bigger on the outside, <laughs> isn't it?" And, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what would have been intriguing is that, you know, she would have been ostensibly a French companion, but we would we have ever actually heard her speak French if she was going to be a regular in the series? I suppose no more than Katarina speaks ancient Greek or something <laughs> or, or anything like that. You know, we, we've, we sure. have a character who is from a different language and culture, but we only ever hear them as English. I wonder if they would have ever addressed that. Probably not. <laughs> Sure. And uh, regarding the rest of the cast, look, there's a very long list of characters. And part of the problem I had with this story, and still have with this story, is that there's a lot of young RP English actors in this. And the names aren't instantly memorable. So, you know, I, I still can hand on heart differentiate between a Duval and a Moose uh, and tell you exactly what their roles were throughout. Um, I, I think this time for me, Gaston stood out because I was particularly trying to pick him out due to his magic roundabout connections. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because I've seen I've seen other reviewers say that I've seen other reviewers say that the cast that the fact that it's only on audio this is either Tat or Lawrence and about times they say that because it's only on audio it's not a problem because the cast is so distinctive and memorable. I just can't see it myself. Gosh. Now that I've watched it three times in quick succession, <laughs> and, and it really, t- for my man, it wasn't until I watched the uh, Loose Cannon Recon that I really got a handle on it. Having <laughs> really struggled every time I'd previously listened to the audio. I think Tosh is too... <laughs> is, uh, is trying not to adopting hackneyed devices so it doesn't really put much effort into introducing characters by name which is why it doesn't really work purely as a as a soundscape um so once you can see <laughs> loose cannons um, nicely photoshopped pictures of those actors from other productions with little moustaches drawn on that really helps it's virtually <laughs> virtually incompre- <laughs> incomprehensible without it and there's not a lot of narration it just so happens that the the audio i don't know if it was an early one but um they're normally superb, the BBC narrated audios, and yet there's not a lot of narration, and so it really isn't very forgiving. <laughs> sure. There are standout yes. characters. There are. Eric Chitty. You can tell him a mile off, can't you? Um, Joan Young, for obvious reasons, as, as the Queen. Leonard Sachs I found difficult to recognise and pick out, funnily enough. Um... The, the 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 barman the 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 owner of the tavern he's got a very rich and distinctive voice and he, he's been in other doctor who i'm sure he has but i couldn't tell you what um but i could i could detect andre morel from five miles away i love him 287 uh, he's, kilometers he's, he's per- 
<laughs> yeah, quite. He's he's purring in this and brilliant, and I am a I'm a fan. Curiously, I I, I saw that uh, that he was up for a role in a movie being made at around the same time. Was uh, he? But they, he had to turn down that to be in Doctor Who. That movie was going to be Daleks Invasion Earth twenty one fifty A.D. Uh, so I, I'm mm. I'm curious to know what role he would have mm. uh, he would have played. I I am a Canadian-based Doctor Who fan. All my uh, actor uh, appearances are basically only through Doctor Who. I know the name Andre Morel. I don't know what else he has been in, unless it was other Doctor Who or potentially the Sandbag. <laughs> that's about uh, the extent of Stephen, my knowledge of him. I I instruct you as much as I can to a, a far better, more committed professional Doctor Who fan. Who, <laughs> but I instruct you at the moment we stop recording, order the BBC version of Quatermass and the Pit. Ah, yes, he's in that. He's in that. Have not your restoration team friends <laughs> already put you onto this? Basically, <laughs> enough. Not yet. He also played Augustus Caesar in the ITV's slightly more dreary telling of what the BBC would later do as I, Claudius. Oh, interesting. The, the, the ITV did a potted history of, of that era of mm -hmm. uh, Rome, and he played the, the title role in that. Um, yeah, I'm a. I like spotting Andre Morel. He's he's good in everything. They've recently re-released the Peter Cushing 1984 mm -hmm. at long last, and he's in that, of course, uh, playing a slightly different against type sort of character for me. He's also um, Doctor Watson to Peter Cushing's Sherlock Holmes in the Hammer Hound of the Baskervilles, isn't he? So yeah, he can be seen all over. Once you start looking for him, you'll see him in everything. Okay. Does anyone wish to pick out any other performances? <laughs> I'm told there are two play school uh, presenters in there. One is obviously Chris Tranchell, who later, and and the other one is Dodo uh, Chapman. Well, quite. I'm assuming the other is Eric Thompson. <laughs> uh, um, I, I that's just. Hmm. But yes. Mm, I don't know. It's hard to tell who's been in play school and who hasn't. Well, it's not Brian Cant because... or Chloe Ashcroft. <laughs> They're yet to come. Uh, Derek Griffiths sadly never made it into Doctor Who on television. Well, I was absolutely flabbergasted to find out that Colin Jeevans was a play school Good presenter. Good lord. I.E. Stamper in um, House of Cards, yep. but also the menacing surgeon in The Underwater oh, yeah. Menace. And the MC in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to yep. the Galaxy. And also the bumbling Lestrade in oh, yes. the ITV Sherlock Holmes. He's one of the creepiest character actors that mm. <laughs> was on TV in the 80s and 90s. And he was a play school presenter. So oh, you I never know. Valentine Dial might have done stint. Let's see you through the arched window. I can't do Valentine Dial. Uh, <laughs> I digress. I noticed that, uh, well, you mentioned Chris Tranchell. I, I only know him from other Doctor Who, of course. He was in, famously as Android in Invasion of Time. But he was also in uh, The Faceless Ones, which today I discovered was directed, well, I knew it was directed by Jerry Mill, but Jerry Mill was the production assistant on The Massacre. And oh. I'm wondering when he oh. came to direct The Faceless Ones in a year's time or so, that he remembered Mr. Trenchill and gave him the job of a very officious uh, flight at, or gate attendant at uh, Gatwick Airport. Nice spot. 
Okay, before we before we move on to the missing episodes aspect, shall we all give our take on the massacre then? A summing up, a final thought. Did we enjoy it? Who would like to go first? I f- I feel like I'm the more the most positive of the three of us, uh, so I'll take that. But uh, I have to admit, um, uh, I my it was probably existed under the surface for me this story until I read the discontinuity guide way back when, and uh, so oh wow they're really selling it and they're calling it the best story ever. Well, this seems like a very hipster thing to be able to do uh, for a story that literally no one has seen, um, apart from some very old people right now in the UK. Um, and uh, so I sort of, I came in uh, it, it, the first time I ever watched the recon, sort of like, okay, I'm expecting this to be great. And if it's not great, people whose opinions I respect have told me it's great. So I'm going to do the heavy lifting for it and make it great in my own mind as well. Uh, but no, I think I think because of, uh, of the way they sort of subvert the doppelganger um, aspect of it, and it really does feel like there's a, there's a, a looming sense of, of doom to it all. Um, you know, perhaps in the lack of music, they're just the the dialogue just sort of happens, and then you know, where they're discussing the names on the list, and there is no list; it's everyone basically. Like there, there is some really chilling stuff for Doctor Who. Um, and they never really go this dark and this dreary again, probably for the good of the show. But uh, it's nice that we have such a show, uh, four episodes of Doctor Who to to go with. So yeah, I'm a big fan of it. <sighs> oh. I'll try and keep this brief because I'm still not sure what my answer is going to be. I came into it on a bit of a downer because I've ne- <laughs> I've never really been able to get my head around the story before. Where the first time you and I did a podcast together, uh, we covered. <laughs> I was just about to We say tried to cover the whole yeah. of season three, and I re- I ashamedly admitted that I didn't understand it, and that I as a result. So this is the first time I've got my head around it, and but then I moved on into the second stage of of the grief process which is having understood it I decided that I didn't really didn't like it not that I didn't like what it is because it's clearly a very well written very well acted piece of drama which seems to achieve everything it sets out to do but I was unaccountably annoyed by it not being proper Doctor Who and I I know you'll that will sound like I'm just saying I want I don't know I want Carnival of Monsters and all right, I admit it. I want Carnival of Monsters, but I, I <laughs> it, it, that was coloured by the knowing the the background upheaval, knowing that Tosh and Wiles were ambitious yet inept, and that most of what they achieved <laughs> was accidental. And I, when you write the I, when you when you write the uh, season three box set documentary, I want you to use that title. <laughs> I. So I, I felt annoyed with them for having achieved something accidental by um, commissioning the wrong writer, <laughs> giving them the wrong idea, and then hurriedly rewriting it. And there, and it isn't perfect. There are even even taking what we've got, there are plot, the genuine plot holes, not plot holes in the loose way in which people <laughs> use the phrase nowadays. There are genuine. You can see through to the structure behind it of the original story, and I don't know whether this is what Doctor Who should be doing. I don't know if Doctor Who should be telling stories where your main characters have no agency whatsoever and just stand by and watch things crumble and turn to shit around them and don't even have a good excuse for why they didn't intervene. But that's what it is, and it does it extremely well. 
so in future I will probably not I will probably forget one day forget all the research I've done about why this story should have been a disaster and I'll, I may actually be able to enjoy it unreservedly in future let's hope so well like you Paul I used to find it somewhat intangible and I found this time I tried watching the loose cannon and I turned it off it was annoying <laughs> me I couldn't I uh, it was distracting me so I, I I listened originally I went to watch the loose cannon and I thought no this isn't doing it for me I'm going to stick to the org I loved it absolutely adored it I historically Yay. I've been very defensive of the myth makers um, and I always get grumpy whenever it's polled against the massacre people always vote the massacre ahead and that was part of my motivation for doing a poll last night which said does the doctor in fact is the doctor in fact the abbot of Amboise at any point and 35% of the people who took the part didn't know some said yes some said I don't know now that might be because they've not listened to it but I think it also speaks to the intangible qualities that the plot has when trying to grapple with something which is just so damn missing but from a personal point of view I love historicals I love learning about history through the medium of kids TV I think that's that's good I'm not saying it's good Doctor Who and I'm not saying it's good kids TV as Doctor Who itself but I personally loved it I really enjoyed is the doctor the abbot once i once that switch flicked and as stephen said only stephen and the audience know that the doctor looks like the abbot and stephen pointed out that the abbot's supposed you think incompetence is allowing people to get off the hook and the first three episodes just shy of the moment where we see the abbot in the street dead i thought were really great and if Stephen Moffat could come in and write episode four and explain in a very clever way how the <laughs> how the Doctor in fact escapes the men approaching him with their swords drawn and explain why the Doctor has ended up being the Abbot and if Anne Shapley had joined and you didn't have Dodo I think that would be one of the most enjoyable Doctor Who stories that's ever been written caveated with it's missing and I'm going to like it because it's missing because I want to like it but the <laughs> sets the sets look glorious it's got a good director the dialogue is well written it's got a rich cast of characters I'm not bothered that I don't know my my mooses from my Gaston's Gaston <laughs> thank you I'm not bothered by that at all because the key characters stood out so this time, having listened to it for maybe only the 10th or 12th time, <laughs> I got it and I loved it. And yeah, I'm really thankful that I've had that switch flick in my head. I thought it was brilliant. So, Shapansky, you're not the most positive about it. Yay. Oh, it makes me happy. <laughs> we really do have to, we, with missing episodes, you do have, sort of have to take a leap of faith, don't you? And just sort yeah. of assume that some of this is the best. Uh, and, uh, you know, until, until you see those, once you see the, the camera directions and you realize that the camera is actually mm. moving, poor loose cannon can do a lot, but they can't necessarily replicate uh, tracking shots from a BBC studio camera that well. And once you, once you factor in motion and everything else, and yeah, it's probably, a, yeah. all these stories are probably better than what we realize. I've now I've now got the the slightly vexed problem of I'm a bit frightened it might get found. The same with the <laughs> myth makers and the same with the destruction of time. <laughs> that if it turns if it turns up, no, it won't be. No, we've got nothing we to worry about there. For all I moan about Tosh and Wiles, if we find any of the that yeah, 
if you find out where's any of their stuff, it'll be worth seeing. And if I can have a caveat, I do think that most of my grumbles are because I know far too much about the behind-the-scenes issues behind this. I don't think, uh, even with my writing hat on, I would be <laughs> over-analyzing the plotting as much as I have been um, if I didn't know how it came about. I would just, if, if it said Don Tosh at the beginning, on the, on the credits, then I think I would, and I didn't know any of the any of the nonsense. I think I would probably feel the same as you two. And yes, I would love to see it. Well, welcome to uh, what we what we call part three internally on our paperwork. We call part three of the podcast. You know it as the uh, your favourite bit, the missing episodes section. Now. What we all know about the massacre is that it is very missing indeed. In fact, if I was in the mood to give out an award for the most missing story of all, I think I'd give it to this one. Does, does anyone want to challenge me on that? Well, uh, I suppose by sheer length, I mean, uh, Mission to the Unknown is just as missing. Um, Marco Polo has telesnapped, so they're out of the running. And so, yeah, I'll go with It's it. one of three stories for which there are no moving images, not no sensor clips and no um, off-air cine film. There are, of course, no telesnaps because John Wiles, and there are very few photos, <laughs> very few photographs, all of which are extensively used in the, in the recon. It is a part of a small group of stories uh, from this era where clips were reused within the program itself. If we could find episode one of the Celestial Toy Maker, there is a clip from the massacre in a section where Stephen is being taunted with some of uh, the most hauntingly upsetting experiences he's had and just laughs at them but we'll be coming on to that <laughs> in, our next, in our next episode and that's about it really we don't have any of it but where has it been in the past after its one outing on british television it was sold you know the drill australia 1966 a couple of years later it went to barbados which was part of the television international enterprises network which, oh. yeah, <laughs> did that name ring a bell with you, Tim? Well, I know that archives organisation, I'm sure no, I've this heard of it. this TIE did not have its own ar archives. Um, a bit later in 68, sold to Zambia. Well, we know that's been checked. The cupboard, or to put it more precisely, the enormous reeking, vinegar reeking storage unit was bare. New Zealand bought it in February 1969. They sent their print on to Singapore who showed it in 1972. We don't know what happened to the Singapore print. This has become a, a recurring refrain. And the other notable location is Sierra Leone, who showed it in December 1970, um, possibly the Barbados print. We mentioned Sierra Leone under the Myth Makers. I think it's a bit too soon to recap that, but possi possibly we'll do it next week, shall we, Tim? We'll give it a, a bigger refresh. Next week, Sierra Leone also on the television international enterprises. Network. Real missing episode rumor mill cognoscenti will recognize the phrase the bell of doom hoax. And anybody <laughs> with a functioning social life will not. Tim, do you want to say anything about the bell of doom hoax? It's a phrase, I'll, I'll just give an intro. It's a phrase that Paul Venezes, friend of the podcast, started banding around on forums as if, as <laughs> if people around. knew what he was talking about. <laughs> of course, this happened around the same time as the Bell of Doom hoax, he would say casually. And, we'd all... <laughs> and the rest of us looked at each other and thought, are we supposed to know about that? 
drop it to get in like the inflatable dirigibles and Houthi or something like <laughs> that. Quite, yeah, it's very homesian of him. Well, I can tell you what I know mm. of it in that now listeners will remember that this has been mentioned before on the podcast in the very first episode where we talked about a situation in Australia that was going on which has been since been labeled a hoax where a collector was found and when they spoke to the collector he claimed to have three entire series in his possession Marco Polo the power of the Daleks and the evil of the Daleks now for some time they thought this was if not plausible then possible this situation progressed and go back to Marco Polo and listen to what happened there however the trail of breadcrumbs that led to this collector was started by something called that Paul Venezes has called the Bell of Doom hoax now the story goes that on a site, an Australian auction site, called something like The Guru of Garbage, an episode of The Massacre appeared, The Bell of Doom. And either it was bid on and the goods never showed or whatever, it was shown to be a hoax. And I believe that in reporting this hoax to the owner of said site, that Mr. Venezes missing episodes commander-in-chief got into a conversation about what it was and the owner of this site went oh film cans films old films with doctor who i've heard of a guy in melbourne who's got some and there you go so that's the strange coincidence that the bell of doom hoax led to started the trail of breadcrumbs that ended up with a really good full-blooded hoax <laughs> in Melbourne, if indeed it is a hoax. So, yeah, that's the story. And I'm only too glad to shine some Thank watery you. light I on it. Thank you. I feel much elucidated. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, it's a bit of an obvious hoax, isn't it, to pick on the episode that I, I suppose most casual fans would would want to see if anything, any episode of The Massacre showed up. Mm. Same as going for yeah. Savages 4 or Mythmakers 4. I mean, they're always bloody part 4s, aren't they? Yeah, and if you're going to steal an episode, it'll be Web of Fear Part 3. <laughs> of course, um, why? <laughs> Nothing happens in any of the other episodes. It might also be worth pointing out an intriguing possibility. Paul, have you heard of um, a Canadian podcast called uh, Free Radio um, Lost? Scaro. Radio I know Free an Scaro. REM song of, of that name, but not a podcast, no. <laughs> oh, okay. One. No, it's it's just it's just that version of the, that song, just done eight hundred and fifty times. <laughs> well, so, well, some time ago, some years ago, now when was it, Stephen, that, that Mr. Venezes appeared? Oh goodness me, was it? It must have been uh, twenty eighteen, I think, since I talked to Paul at Gallifrey One uh, twenty nineteen. So yeah, twenty eighteen mm. that he uh, let slip the the information that you're about to divulge. Yeah. So Paul revealed that there were two episodes that he was aware of that exist in the hands of a private collector or private collectors in the UK. And what he said at the time, uh, before I get to that, the British press then got hold of this, and I think it was in the mirror, or uh, I think it was in the mirror, mm -hmm. My apologies to the mirror if it wasn't, where there was a <laughs> an article that said, Doc, uh, TV producer states that all 97 episodes exist in private hands, yeah. um, which was a direct effects that you had on the british press Stephen. so well played <laughs> thank you 
However, he stated sometime after that or on the podcast, but in the conversation that followed, that they were both Hartnells and that one of the episodes was not on the list of episodes known to be returned by Australia in 1975, and one of them was. So, in a nutshell, early Hartnell wasn't on the Australia Returns, and season three Hartnell onwards was on this Australian Returns list. Relatively recently, a couple of years ago, Paul clarified that while, in fact, he thought at the time, because he didn't check the list, that one of them was on the Australian Returns list, it turns out it wasn't. So one has to go through a little mental exercise and decide what might someone reasonably suspect is on the 75 returns list, but in fact isn't. And when you get out your marker pen and cross out the possibilities, you arrive at two stories. One of those is the massacre, and the other one is the savages. The episode that wasn't on the return list must be one of the Reign of Terror or one of the Crusade. So there is a, perhaps ostensibly a 50-50 chance that one <laughs> of the episodes that Paul Venezes knows about that exists in private hands is one of the episodes of The Massacre. Mm. That would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice. Mm. Honestly, I mean, obviously we were, we'd be greedy for four. I'd take any of them. I would take any of them. Well, I'd take any of them. Mm. I'd take another episode of Galaxy 4 if you'd, if you'd put it into my hands. <laughs> uh, but not The Reign of Terror. Ah, uh, no, no, they throw that one back. <laughs> yeah, so I will tell that story in an equally fascinating way, no doubt, by the time we get to the savages, unless <laughs> Paul has managed to wink all loose the goods by uh, November or October or whenever that is. Uh, it's unlikely. I, I believe this collector has bigger fish to fry or, some, or something. Only on Gallifrey Base could that get equated to it's definitely one of the underwater menace. <laughs> It's not even got Hartnell in it. <laughs> a couple things that, I mean, you might have covered this in, in other episodes, but this is my only forum on this podcast, so I have to tell you about it now. Uh, I, and I might have already said it on when you were on Radio Free Scar all those years ago as well, uh, where I believe I was prompting you to make more episodes, and here we are two years later finally making them. <laughs> Uh, is that because uh, um, I just noticed, you know, Australia bought this in December 66, which is when probably was when the newly pressed uh what um uh not suppressed field recordings but the uh stored field stored field recordings uh i know a lot of people said oh well for sure feast of steven is uh is wiped forever because it was never sold to australia but uh, but i've often argued because they, they made all of those uh, stored field recordings in december of 66 and let me tell you bbc engineers do not know anything nor do they care about which uh, episodes are intended for overseas sales and which are not and I bet you they probably just took the master tapes and plopped them down and spun off film copies of every single episode they have uh, and that uh -huh. this is why I believe that the Feast of Steven was actually made a film recording of whether that still exists today I don't know but uh, even though it wasn't sold overseas I bet you that just because it was a one episode in a long run of giant two inch master tapes I bet you they probably made it Stephen, just to say there, uh, and for the, for the benefit of the listener, they'll be listening to this after the Daleks Master Plan Part 2 has gone out. So you've got an exciting wait, Stephen, to find out whether we agree <laughs> with you. Oh, exciting. Oh, my word. 
Here I am at Ealing Film Studios filming my first scenes, and I don't even know what's to come yet in the episode. That I'm <laughs> uh, and secondly, isn't it interesting that the uh, the Six Day War in 1967, which closed the uh, Suez Canal for eight years, probably had a massive impact on the number of countries that uh, bought and received Doctor Who missing episodes, and there could be a direct correlation between how many episodes are missing from 1966 onward compared to the first two years. Doctor Who because they were exporting like Marco Polo like what 29 different nations and then we suddenly just get uh, you know various uh, members of the Commonwealth and that are relatively apart from Singapore and Australia uh, relatively easy to uh, to send ships to uh, while not relying on the Suez Canal to uh, to get them through there if it wasn't for that damned war we might have more episodes of Doctor Who in our hands oh today. which war are you talking about all oh, the number of wars that have got between us and Doctor Who <laughs> I'm specifically blaming. I'm specifically blaming the Six Day War. Well, I'll, I'll take your Six Day War and raise you. No, that's bad taste. <laughs> bad taste. But what were you going to say? The Sierra, Sierra Civil, war, Civil War. Obviously, that was going to say the. I was going to say the Third French War of Religion, um, as I believe it's called. That yeah. sounds such a clumsy name that it sounds like I've made it up, but it's actually what it was called. Well, look, we can lament historical events preventing us from knowing more about our favourite hobby without appearing completely inhuman and having no sense of perspective. That's just us three. I mean, no one else no one else no, can no. do that. Cause no, obviously not. Especially not if they do it on Gallifrey Base. And that concludes our look at the massacre. So before we say goodbye, I'm just going to say a massive thank you to our mighty Kublai Khan patrons. Tony Carroll, Bedwia Gulledge, Jess Jerkovic, Paul Cook, Ray Badrick, Simon Whitehead, Tim Arding and Unknown Consciousness. And indeed, thanks to all of our patrons. You really are the grease in our wheels, so to speak. Now, if you'd like to join us on Patreon for early access and all sorts of goodies, then visit www.patreon.com slash missing episodes. And our lovely supporters can currently listen to our next episode on the Celestial Toymaker, and I've had this one for over a month. You can also find us at Doctor Who Podcasters with a DR on Twitter, and we have a Facebook page just look for the missing episodes podcast and if you haven't checked out our youtube channel then there's loads of extra content on there as well finally please do leave us a review on apple podcast to help us appease the algorithm gods five stars if possible and share us on your social media so paul thank you very much thank you tim welcome back is it good to be back yeah very good i'm glad my chair's still warm. How has that happened? It's been two years. <laughs> Who else have you had in here? <laughs> and Stephen Schapansky, thank you so much. That was brilliant. Um, and what a pleasure to have you on a small little podcast like this. Thank you very much. It was well worth the wait to talk about the massacre with you fine gentlemen. Bye. Bye. Even though he's just come in. Fine, I'll take him back out again. No!
I mean, kill him with your rifle. <laughs> oh, dear.